Okay, well, good evening, everybody. Thanks for being here. Good to see you all. Hi, Ira. Hi, Ira. You got your <laughs> communion already. Man, there is quite the throng here tonight. <laughs> this is awesome. It's good to see you all. And for those tuning in live, thanks for being here. Or if you're watching the video after, thanks. So this class, the title is, Should I Be Worried About the End Times? Should I be worried about the end times? <laughs> Frightened. Frightened. Yeah. Sorry. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. God, we pray that you would lead us in a discussion of your word, and that you would call us, God, as your people, and lead us into ways that you're calling us to respond to these times, to consider these times, to love our neighbor, to love you, and God, to balance all these things that are pulling for our attention. God, give us wisdom, and we pray, God, for that peace, that peace that surpasses understanding that comes from a place of trust in you. So God, uh, give us wisdom as we speak tonight. Give us ears to hear your word. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your word and, and study it. It is a blessing. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to uh, have Tyler spend about 15 minutes or so setting the table. Then you're going to show us a couple of uh, Bible project videos that are very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, then I'm going to talk and try to limit it to about 25 minutes. And then we're going to kind of have some questions after that. And during that question time, uh, I'm planning on probably both of us getting into a lot of scripture because we think that uh, answering this question needs to be rooted in scripture and not our emotions or not culture, mm. uh, not what we're hearing from people, but we really need to go to God's word to be able mm. to figure those things out. So, good. so set the table for us. Okay. Well, I want to start by trying to build some common ground here. And so the title for tonight is, Should I Be Worried About the End Times? And so underlying that assumption is that there is something that many of us might feel worried about on, on whatever level. Because if it is the end of the world as we know it, well, then I'm confused. I'm confused on what I should feel, what I should be thinking. How do I consider all these things? And to start with, I just want to bring up a, a reminder for us that our culture is fascinated with the end of the world. And for decades now, and still running, there are stories in movies and TV shows telling a variation on the apocalypse, the end of the world, and, and what that's going to look like. You look at the Terminator movies, the Hunger Games, and, and they go across genres, too, into comedy like Zombieland, the Matrix trilogy, Planet of the Apes. Frank, I'm sure there's some just ringing through your mind, too. <laughs> um, but these all share in common. These are all ELE movies, extinction-level event movies. And they span That's across. That's a new term for me. I've never heard that term. There you go. That's very, see, I'm learning something That's already. Free of charge. Uh, so there's something fundamentally fascinating about how the world's going to end to us. Uh, 28 Days Later it goes into the horror genre along those same lines. The Quiet Place was a huge box office movie last year, and 
Uh, and then, then there's a second one coming out in September this year. The Walking Dead, a TV show along those lines. Disney movies, too. My son's favorite movie is, is Wally. If you've seen that one, it is adorable, by the way. But Wally is a post-apocalyptic movie. It's about, it takes place after the end of the world as they knew it. And uh, the Avengers, all the Marvel movies, I won't go too deep into this because Frank will actually fall asleep if I talk about it too much. But Endgame, which was all building towards for 10 years, is about preventing the apocalypse. That's what it's all about. And that, by the way, was the biggest box office movie of all time. And these movies have shaped our culture. They've defined generations. And, I might add, they've cooked a layer of fear into our psyche. And so we're fascinated by these movies and stories. And these days, we're inundated with the news, which, which sounds an awful lot like the end of the world, the more we see it. This is, there's an unprecedented global virus right now, killing hundreds of thousands of people causing many of our friends to lose jobs. This is affecting even us. Uh, there's growing fears of a, of a potential economic collapse that might come as a result of that. There's, uh, many think there's an impending evictions crisis coming our way where there's gonna be a lot of newly homeless people out of work and, and then not able to pay their rent. And what's that gonna do to our economy? There's uh, wars and, and conflicts uh, throughout the globe. If you remember back in January, the fires that raged through Australia, right? That was not that long ago. Um, I, I was just looking up news since 2020 started, but it was a long, it took a long time to get through, but I didn't even hear about this, but there was an earthquake that hit Salt Lake City, Utah. That was a 5.7 back in March. Interestingly, I saw, and I saw the picture of this, it actually um, shook the Mormon temple there and actually knocked the trumpet out of Moroni's Hands. Do you know that? That's it. It's over. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wow, that's that's interesting. Uh, in May, there were locusts that were described as blotting out the skies in parts of Kenya, causing massive food insecurity and and issues there, food scarcity. Las Vegas had locusts too. Wow. This, I mean, it's been a busy year. There's, uh, my wife has sent me many memes that describe 2020 as a dumpster fire of a year, uh, but. The protesting and, and riots that are still happening throughout the country, um, hitting home even in parts of Phoenix here and causing that curfew that kicked in for us. There's, there are murder hornets still invading the country. Okay, this is the fun part of my job. I got to research a little bit about murder hornets, okay. Did you know their stinger is a quarter inch long? Think about that, okay. They have a three inch wingspan. What other bug do you know that's described by its wingspan? This is, it's ridiculous. Okay, last thing. Do you know they can fly up to 25 miles an hour? Do you know that? That's a little faster than I can <laughs> run, which is a problem. Um, and back to the news, there, there's some flooding going on in China right now that's so bad actually that they blew uh, the Chu River Dam, the local authorities there, uh, blew up the dam, and that's in central Hanoi province to try to bring the water levels down. That's how bad the flooding is there right now. We get these asteroid alerts that tell us when they're flying close to the Earth and, and we start to think, okay, that one missed, but how long till the next one's gonna, gonna hit us, right? Remember when all we had to worry about was the solar flare and maybe wiping out the electrical grid? And maybe you forgot about that, but now you're worried about that too. <laughs> but I don't know about you, but every time I hear stories like that, 
uh, my imagination just runs, filling in the blanks and, and filling again with, with worry about uh, looking for answers, uh, looking or even looking away because it's overwhelming or scary to look at and engage with all that stuff. And we start to ask ourselves, should I be worried? Is this something I should be worried about? Is this the beginning of the end? So what do we mean exactly by end times? So end times is that term that we used in the title. If you've done any digging into what the Bible has to say about end times, you probably didn't find a super clear singular answer on exactly uh, what that means. You may have walked away even more confused than when you started. So you thought, okay, I'll dig into church history. I'll, I'll look at what scholars and, and church fathers have to say. And what you find there is that there are very smart, Bible-believing theologians and scholars who hold widely differing interpretations on some, some key scriptures related to the end of the world and what the Bible says about it. It's all complicated. It can even be divisive, and um, it can even seem irrelevant to some people. Why bother worrying if I'm a pre-millennialist or, or post-millennialist or amillennialist? There's a new term, pan-millennialist, which is the belief that'll all pan out in the end. Yeah. But um bum That's what I am. I'm a pan-millennial. Nailed it. I practiced the delivery of that. Okay. <laughs> But the, the point is, is it even worth worrying about all these terms and all these things if it's so hard to understand? Is it even worth it? So that's why I wanted to do this class, because I think we're all feeling these things, those here and those watching are feeling these things on one level or another. And as your pastors, we want to do what we can to help bring clarity to the call of Christians in this season. And so we should touch on briefly why one night about a topic this broad why one night? Why do we feel like we can do it in one night? Well, two things. Our guess is that most folks are seeing what we're seeing and wanting more clarity on, on the specific question we're asking, which is, should I be worried? More than a deep scholarly dive into the totality of the end times. Um, there are, the second reason is there are so many other resources that do that in way more depth than we even could with a, a Wednesday night class series, however long. You were saying you did one at your previous church, uh, Paradise Valley Community, for 11 weeks? 11 weeks, uh, more than an hour every night. And, and we still just kind of scratch the surface. Just scratch the surface. So in lieu of that, we're going to share at the end of the class a list of resources for those who are interested to do more of a deeper dig into this with your families, with your communities, and, and friends, and things like that. So uh, we're going to do one night just to try to speak to the tension that we think most people are feeling. That, that kind of should I, is this something I should be worried about? So uh, we do, however, think this is a question worth digging into. And so we definitely are excited to, to share with you tonight because these are important world-shaping events happening right now. These are culture-defining events. My kids are going to remember the coronavirus thing for the rest of their lives. So this is shaping a generation. So we, there's no way we could say these things don't matter. Of course they matter. And we should engage with these things. So here's a great quote to start the night with to kind of get us thinking here. And then I'll walk us through, uh, as Frank did briefly, just kind of remind us how the rest of the night's going to go. So here's a quote. The main problem facing the human race is not that it's on a collision course with an asteroid. Our problem is far worse. Think about that. We are on a collision course with a holy God who's coming to judge a sinful world. Now, the Bible does have a lot to say with us, to, to us about how 
the world will end. It's, it's scattered through the, the, all of the, uh, the parts of the Bible, and it's often referred to as the day of the Lord, uh, judgment day, and we're going to be cracking open the book of Revelation tonight. And in order to help us with some of the heavy lifting of that book, we're going to start by watching a couple of semi-short videos. So we're going to go watch the Bible Project videos. It's a two-part series through Revelation. So they're about 11 minutes per video, and what we're going to do is watch one and then roll right into the second one. And then at the end of that, uh, we'll, we'll still be up here. But then Frank will continue with his, uh, his side of things. So um, let's go ahead and, and watch those now. Sorry about that, everybody. While they work to figure that out, we're just going to jump ahead. So we may come back to the videos. If not, we'll just have a link for people to be able to go watch them on their own or something. Okay. So you want me to jump in? Are you ready for me to jump in? Yeah. Okay. That quote you gave is a sobering quote. Yeah. And I think it's at, frankly, I think that's at the root of what our biggest problem is. Um, so many people want to learn about and talk about the book of Revelation, but when you start talking to them about it, uh, it's almost as if chapters one through three don't exist, and they're not that interested in chapters 21 and 22 either. It's all the, what I would call the Dungeons and Dragons special effects stuff in chapters four through uh, 20 that people uh, seem so uh, obsessed with. What the problem is with that is that we forget that before you get to the special effects that start in chapter 4, um, there are real warnings 
to real churches in that area from Jesus. It, this is not John writing this. John, John is the scribe. John is the secretary. He's recording what Jesus is telling him to write to these seven churches, and these seven churches really represent the, the comprehensive view of the entire church through all times. In other words, these seven letters are also written to us today. And, and so we need to review what Jesus writes in these letters because they are applicable to us today. And if we're not aware of those things, we're, it, it's not going to matter whether or not we understand the interpretation of chapters 4 through 20 in Revelation. It just isn't going to matter if we don't first have the foundation of chapters 1 through 3. And the letters actually occur in chapters 2 and 3. So what we need to do is we need to remember that Jesus only gets to chapters 4 through 22 after establishing first his authority in chapter 1. Chapter 1 sets up the book. John's on the Isle of Patmos, kind of minding his own business, and Jesus comes to him. And Jesus comes to him in a vision that is all about making sure that John and the rest of the people who receive these letters, including us today, understand Jesus' complete and total authority to be able to write these letters. That's what chapter 1 is. And then chapter 2 are these seven letters that Jesus writes to instruct the churches on how to live while we wait for his second coming. Now, I would think that would be important for us as Christians not to be worried about uh, what's going to happen, when's it going to happen, what day is Jesus coming, I want to know all of this before everybody else, I want to be on the inside. Instead, Jesus has actually told us what we need to know. He's given us instructions on how we are to live our lives while we wait for his advent, his return. And so these letters, these seven letters, if you uh, take them and compile them together. Every time I've ever heard these letters taught, and this is a great way to teach them, the letters are taught one by one. Here's the, here's the letter to the church at Ephesus. Here's the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Here's the letter to the church at Sardis. What I've done is I've taken them kind of as a whole, and there's really just three things that Jesus does totally in these letters. He praises the churches in some cases. He warns the churches in some cases. And in some cases, he tells the church very specifically, I have this against you. So of the three things that Jesus does in these letters, two of them are either warnings or it's not just a warning. It's you're doing this wrong and you need correction. And then the third part is praise. I'm, I admit, I'm going to lean into not the praise parts. You can read the letters and see what the churches are doing well. But he's writing the churches not because they're necessarily doing well, but because they need warning. And so I'm going to lean into the warnings, and sometimes they're just warnings. Sometimes he starts by saying, but this I have against you. So here's the first letter, Ephesus. He starts out by praising Ephesus with what they're doing and what they have done. But then he says this, you have a problem. You have abandoned your first love. You're running around doing all this churchy stuff but you're doing it without me, without Jesus. So what you're doing has absolutely no effect. It's just busy work, essentially. And I find that this is really common today in America, in the Christian church in the 21st century. Too often, 
churches lose sight of what is really important, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, so many churches, if they even started with that as their vision, they lose sight of that vision. And so the church becomes about something else. It becomes about being a social movement of some sort, or it becomes a social club of some sort. And Jesus is completely left behind. Uh, one of Tom's, you know, Tom Schrader is famous for all these different sayings. We're going to do that, by the way, on August 19th. We're going to have a night where we have a discussion of the famous sayings of Tom Schrader. But one of his famous sayings was, in the church, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And he, he would say that often because he says too many churches lose sight of what the main thing is, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even today, this is what I find so sad. Even today now, I find that in the evangelical church today, if I were to walk up to somebody and say, I think what we really need to be focusing on is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that has become taboo. I'm getting pushback from people saying, no, it's not enough to do, yeah, yeah, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's fine, but we need to be about this, and we need to be about this, and we need to be about this. And, and what I find is that the people who are so concerned about being about all these other things really aren't about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's a problem. Jesus says in his first letter to the first church, he says, you have lost your first love. The church in America has lost its first love. And that's what we should be concerned about with these end times. Are you worried about the end times? Yes then you need to return to your first love. That's the first thing you need to do. Here's what he says to Smyrna. He says, he doesn't ever say to Smyrna, I have this against you, but he gives them a warning, which is a great warning for any church. And this is the warning. You have a lot of suffering coming your way. And this suffering is going to be unjust. You're not going to suffer because you're doing things right, uh, wrong. You're going to suffer because you are being the church. He has basic praise for this church, but he says, you're going to suffer for it. You're going to suffer because you are standing up for the gospel. You're going to suffer because you are biblical. You're preaching the word. You're telling people about Jesus. So you are going to suffer. The world is going to hate you. And his advice for that is stand firm in your faith. You need to dig in and stand firm. He says, here's what he says, and I quote, be faithful unto death. Be willing to die for your faith. So that's what he says to Smyrna. Here's what he says to Pergamum. He says, the problem with you guys in Pergamum is that you not only allow false teaching and heresy, but you embrace it. It's not just that you're kind of allowing it and ignoring it. You are standing up and applauding it. You're embracing it. And I would say this is obviously prevalent uh, today in churches across America especially. We have churches filled with heresy, filled with false teaching. By the way, here's one aspect of that false teaching. I don't know how many of you have seen, there's a documentary on Netflix called American Gospel. You should watch this documentary. It is absolutely stunning in its clarity in calling out some false teaching, but also in proclaiming the pure unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I've had conversations with people who we've actually, were actually a little bit surprised that Netflix uh, um, sponsored this document because it is so straightforward about the gospel and about false teaching. It's about a two and a half hour documentary. You should watch it. But Jesus says, false teaching and heresy, this is a problem and it's going on in Pergamum. Um, 
I would argue that the worst biblical doctrine in the world is found in American Christian churches today. It's not found in Africa. It's not found in South America. It's not found in Asia. The worst biblical doctrine is found right here in the United States in American Christian churches. Why? Why? Because we are consumers and we are pragmatists. We are consuming a spiritual product rather than understanding it's a relationship with the Savior, and we are pragmatists. We, we come to church going, all right, what's going to work? How is this going to work for me? Okay, that's a problem because that's not what our faith is about. Uh, in fact, um, probably the most common type of religion that we're working through right now in the United States is something that one scholar has named therapeutic moralistic deism. Most Christian churches are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching something that has now been named therapeutic moralistic deism. Okay, now notice the emphasis on the word therapeutic. Everything today has got to be therapeutic. It's got to make you feel better. Well, the gospel isn't going to always make you feel better. In fact, the gospel starts with bad news before we even get to the good news. The bad news is that you're a sinner and you're lost without Jesus. That's not very therapeutic, but it's loving because it's telling you the truth. And then it's moralistic. It's telling you you have to do something, which is not the gospel. Jesus has already done everything. And then it's deism, meaning, yeah, I believe in a God somewhere out there. Yes. No. God is Jesus Christ. So this doesn't work either. The fourth church, Tyra Tyra. Jesus says this to Tyra Tyra. And this is, this is really interesting to me. Jesus says, your problem is that you tolerate and celebrate sexual immorality. Hello, 21st century America. Everything today is about uh, sexual identity, sexual orientation, sexual um, immorality, everything. I find it interesting that Jesus' most stringent words in these seven letters are reserved for this church because of sexual immorality. Read through these letters. This is where he gets the toughest. It's, it's, it, he's not saying to the church, you need to do a better job loving your neighbor. Uh, you, you need to resource the under-resourced. He's saying, that's fine. Do all of that. But your problem is, is that you're engaging in sexual immorality, and that's destroying everything. His toughest words are for sexual immorality. Now, why would that be? Well, Paul explains, the Apostle Paul says, the, the problem with sexual immorality is because it's a sin that's inside of your body. It's against yourself when you're engaging in sexual immorality. And as a result, that means that your sexual immorality as a sin is going to affect everything else that you do in your life. And so it's going to infect everything that you do. It's going to touch everything. And just consider this. This is the only place in these seven letters where Jesus gets specific about the sin that he's talking about. Every other letter, if he has a warning or a, or a this I have against you, it's a general warning. It's a general this I have against you. This is the only one where he gets specific. And guess what? It's about sexual immorality. So I think that's instructive. Here's what Jesus says to the sexually immoral church. I will throw her into a sickbed I will throw them into great tribulation and strike them dead. Wow. Sweet, loving Jesus. He's serious about this. Okay? So here, just this prompts a question for me. 
why do we in the church insist on reforming God's view of sexuality and gender rather than reforming our sexual sinful instincts? Why is that? We are expecting that God is going to reform his view. Why aren't we reforming our view? That's the question I have. And Jesus is asking the same question with Tyra, Tyra. Next church, number five, Sardis. Uh, this, uh, this church is the church that has the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. He says, your problem is that you have, you, you're all papered over, you're whitewashed tombs, you have this appearance of godliness, but you deny the power of godliness. And if you want more on this, look at the letter of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm actually going to try to read that later. Uh, but also, Sardis's problem is that they are a church of complacency, apathy, and sloth. Sardis is a church of complacency, apathy, and sloth. Uh, they're just content to chill. Sardis is the social club church of the seven churches. They're all getting together, and they all like each other, and they all have a great time together, but they're not doing anything. They're not empowered by Jesus. There's no talk of the gospel, and they're not going out and loving their neighbor, and that's a problem. Number six is Philadelphia. Uh, this church actually gets no warning, nor do they get uh, an I have this against you. They get nothing but praise. Here's what they get praise for. This is really interesting. They get praise because they are a church of low worldly status, yet they have huge faith. They are an under-resourced church. They are a church that doesn't have the big sanctuary and the fancy sound system and, and the videos and the, and the smoke machines and, and, and all of that. They're a church that has low worldly status, and yet they have the strongest faith. And Jesus because, says that because this is true, they will actually have power. They're the ones that are going to have actual power. And then the last church, number seven, Laodicea. This is a pretty famous passage. This is the church that Jesus says to them, you know, you're not hot and you're not cold. You're lukewarm. And so if I put you in my mouth, I'm going to spit you out because you're, you're lukewarm. And I get that myself. Jackie will tell you that I like, I like my food and drink, I like it either way too hot or way too cold. I don't like anything in the middle. It's just not, I don't, I don't know, there's something about it I don't like. I like my coffee extra hot, I like my soup extra hot, I like my Mexican food extra hot, spicy and temperature-wise, and, 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 I, and I, like, I, I like my sodas cold. I like cold water. I don't like tepid water. I don't like lukewarm water. So, he says, I, I would spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. And by the way, uh, literally, if you go into the Greek, uh, what, what Jesus actually says there is, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I mean, this is not pleasant um, language. Uh, here's another way of saying this. This is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. You are a church that is good for nothing. You are a church that is good for nothing. Now, here's what's interesting about Laodicea. This city... This ancient city in the first century was famous for their healing springs, like a, like a whirlpool bath, their healing springs and their salves. Yet these healing springs don't work if they have lukewarm temperatures. They only work if they're hot or if they're 
cold. So there's kind of a metaphor that's going on here. Here's another way to describe it. The church at Laodicea was a church that was content to play it safe. They wouldn't preach the gospel, they wouldn't confront sin, nor would they stand uh, for what's right for the community. And, and they were a church that was very content to be without Jesus. America has this problem too. We are a church that is really content to leave Jesus standing outside of the door of the church. And we know that this is what Jesus is saying because he says to this church, I stand outside your door knocking. I would like to come into your church. And they won't open the door. And this is, this is very frustrating. Uh, so many people will use this verse, I would argue, out of context to talk to people about evangelism. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking and you won't let him in. That's not what the verse says. The verse, the verse is saying the church won't let Jesus in. We were started to be a church of Jesus Christ and we won't even let our founder into uh, the building. That's the problem. Jesus is saying, I'm the founder of your church and you're not even letting me in. I'm the one that powers your church and you're not letting me in. So, here's what should be heard before you get into the Dungeons and Dragons stuff of Revelation 4 through 20. Uh, this, all of this stuff is all going on in the American church today. And not just a little bit. It's an epidemic in our church. But it's also nothing new. It was happening in 90 AD as well. In other words, here you go. The road to destruction is wide and many are on it, but the road to life, the road to the kingdom of God is narrow and very few people find it. And that's been true for 2,000 years. And that's why we need stuff like, we, we need stuff like this to direct us back to, uh, to what's important. So taken together, here's what I would argue the seven letters say in sort of a summary statement. This is what Jesus is saying to every church everywhere today and back then. He's saying to those churches in the first century, you have a choice that's set before you. You will either live by the spirit of the Roman age or by the spirit of God. You will either compromise or you will be faithful. And there's no in-between. There's no hedging your bets. You're either all in or all out. So here's what he's saying to us today. Every local church in America today, he's saying this. You have a choice set before you. You will either live by the spirit of the postmodern, progressive 21st century age of meism, consumerism, and instant gratification, or you will live by the spirit of God. You will either compromise and go with the crowd and comfortably do what is cool and acceptable in the moment, or you will be faithful to your Savior and his word. And there's no in-between. There's no hedging your bets. You're either all in or all out. By the way, if you're thinking that you have a choice set before you language sounds familiar, uh, look in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28. This is what God says to his people before they enter the promised land. He says, I'm setting before you a choice. You can follow me and my commands, or you can follow the culture and the world. And if you follow me and my commands, you're going to be blessed not always the way you think you're going to be blessed, but we will be in relationship and you'll be blessed. And if you turn your back on me, there's going to be some problems. And there were problems for him. 
So it's the same, it's essentially the same theme that we're hearing. So here you go. We ask this question, should I be worried about the end times? Here's what I'm worried about. I'm most worried that we're not being biblical. I think that's what we should be worried about, is whether or not we're even living by the Bible. We're so distracted with when is he coming? Is this a sign? Have I figured out the formula? If I just assign numbers to the different Greek words and then I can figure out exactly when Jesus is coming. Oh, by the way, it's next week. Guess I don't have to go to work next week. You know, we're so distracted with all that stuff rather than just looking at scripture and hearing what scripture has to say to us in instructing us at this time. So, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. really good. Hold, hold that thought. We're going to unpack that more. Um, Caleb said that the video is ready. So once again, these are, we're going to watch two videos. They're each about 11 minutes or so, and it's going to give us, uh, a, it's actually probably helpful that you spoke first because it's going to give us a framework for some of this conversation. This is, is gonna they're going to the do videos. some of the dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons stuff. They're going to get now, into right? the Dungeons and Dragons right, type cool. stuff. All right. All right, so let's watch those. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalupsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time and place and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. 
Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past or could be happening now or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives.
So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals and John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1 and they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne and the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense and they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census like the one in the book of Numbers chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. 
But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus given to John the prophet. In the first video, we explored how John composed this apocalyptic prophecy as a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor to challenge and comfort these Christians who were suffering from apathy and persecution under the Roman Empire. We also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgments like the plagues of Egypt, and like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the open scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even if it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. 
John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero's just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat. Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl. As the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, 
John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. And she's called Babylon the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false god. This isn't something limited to the past or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest. And now it's depicted as a final battle and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention, he's covered with blood before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. And his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon and they're brought back to life and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus's return, followed by a thousand year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus's and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning 
bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Amen. Yeah, wow. There's so much there. I, so they describe the seven bowls and the seven seals and the seven trumpets as like those little dolls where you open it up and there's another the nesting doll. dolls. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think I told you the last time I read through Revelation, I said I felt like I was at. If you've ever been to Disneyland and you're waiting to ride one of the most popular rides and you're in one of those lines and you think, well, if we just get around that corner, then we're there, and then you get around that corner and you realize there's. <laughs> That's kind of what I, so it's like Disneyland. Revelation is like Disneyland, so. (laughs) I guess. So, what do we got? We got about 15 minutes, so what do you got for us? Well, I think what's important to remember there, um, what what we hope you take away is, um, should we be worried about the end times? Um, It's something we should be watchful of. It's something we should be aware of in, in world events. But the thing we ought to concern ourselves the most is um, this eternal perspective that's given at the end of Revelation of where we're headed is this beautiful wedding feast, this perfect unity, this wiping away every tear. And until then, uh, we're given, uh, we have the great commandment. We're, we're told what we ought to be concerning ourselves with in, in the meantime is loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor like ourselves. And that's where our, our concern and our attention should be primarily, right? Did you have some questions? I do, yeah. Um, you this is unscripted, so I have no idea if, how this is going to go. <laughs> Frank, tell me when. I got, I got to get my calendar out. Tell me when uh, Jesus is going to come back. No one knows the day or the calendar. hour, not okay. even the Son of Man. So all the predictions that we've had in the past have not come true. 
Yeah. So. And it's, it's important to remember, too, that question isn't new. The disciples yeah. asked that in Matthew 24. They're like, Jesus, all right, break it down. What, what's going to happen? What's it going to be like? When's it going to be happening? Every, every generation has had prophets who have said, I know when it is. And every generation has had prophets who have profited off of making those predictions, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. They've used it as a means for uh, gain. Uh, but I will mm -hmm. tell you, you know, reading in Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the second seal being opened, uh -huh. I don't know why this strikes me, but just with all the civil unrest that's going on right now, um, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. It, it just feels like we're kind of in the middle of that. So I can understand why there is so much uh, curiosity about this right now. Because yeah. things seem to be unraveling, hmm. you know. So I get it. Talk a little bit, if you can, uh, about this, the Antichrist. And, and this is mentioned in First John, the series we're going through yeah. on Sundays right now. Remind us of, of what you were talking about when we were in that session. Well, the antichrists really are, are primarily uh, just false teachers. Hmm. They're people who have the appearance of godliness, but they, do not, uh, they aren't empowered by uh, God in any way, shape, or form. But they create followings, and they lead people astray. And every church in every generation has had to deal with false teachers, hmm. uh, people who want to uh, leverage the church and leverage the church community for their own gains and for their own purposes. And mm. those are the anti-Christ. Uh, um, here's, here's Timothy in, uh, when you started bringing that up, I thought, let's just read Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Okay. But understand this, that in the last days, there's that phrase again, the last days, the last times, John, in First John, calls it the last hour, last hours, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless. This word here just kills me every time. Unappeasable. I, I, I feel like we live right now in a time where nobody can be appeased by anything. They demand appeasement. People are demanding appeasement. And the minute you, you give them what they ask for, they say, well, that's not enough. It, mm. it's, it's, we live in a culture of moving goalposts all the time. Mm. So that one, I would say, is pretty clear that we're in the midst of that right now. The problem is, is that uh, Paul was writing this in 63, 64 A.D., and it was happening then, too. So in 64 AD, they're all walking around going, you can't appease anybody. We must be in the last times. Jesus is putting on his sandals. He's going to be here next week. Yeah. So we've seen this uh, repeated over and over again. And we're in the midst of it now. They're going to be slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then Paul says this, avoid such people. Avoid the antichrists. Avoid the false teachers. And avoid the people who follow the false teachers. That's what he's saying. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, 
always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Hmm. I, it, that just, that is a picture of what we're living in today, wow. everywhere. So hmm. um, that would be my short answer on the Antichrist at this point. Yeah. So you kind of hinted at it there, but I'm going to make you say it. Do you think we're currently living in the end times? Yes, we are. But the end times started when Jesus ascended. So, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't know who the Antichrist is. I thought I knew. I thought it was Miley Cyrus, but she's kind of past her prime, <laughs> so it's not her. So it turns out it wasn't her. It yeah, wasn't her. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting in the video, they talk about the mark of the beast. I think that's something that he hints out there. It's just captured our imagination. Um, should we be worried about that mark of the beast? Uh, would we accidentally get that somehow? Should we be worried that it's the, the vaccine for the coronavirus? It is. Or this, it's going to be the vaccine for the coronavirus. This microchip that, that Bill they're Gates gonna, is They're going to put is... the chip in there. Bill Gates is behind it all. I have evidence. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm reading blogs, and you can trust all the blogs. Trust me. And I think that when we see news like that, we, you know, some of us tend to... See, then I go, wait, okay, is that the mark? I, I don't mean to be flip about that, but here's why I am flip. Some of you in this room are old enough to remember this. Remember when the, all the grocery stores started coming out with their little cards where you, you, you scan the card before they start scanning your stuff and you get discounts on your groceries? I cannot tell you how many essays were written by well-meaning Christian leaders who were saying, do not sign up for the discount card at Safeway or Kroger or wherever it is because it's the mark of the beast. It's a sign of the end times. They're getting all your information. Yeah, of course they're getting all your information. They have it anyway. Anybody who has a cell phone, they've got all your information. I hope you understand that. It's very possible that this is the mark of the beast right here. We've already got it. The problem is, I think, and I think Allison said this this morning, um, and the video said the same thing. You will be asked to make a choice. Are you going to have the mark of Christ? Are you going to confess your belief in Christ? Or are you going to accept whatever that mark of the beast is? And the mark of the beast could, could very simply just be the fact that you are following the culture rather than following Christ. Mm -hmm. And you are making a decision to do so. It's not a bait and switch uh, you're not going into a grocery store to buy something, and the next thing you know, they've got all your information. That's yeah. not what it's about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think the clearest picture that he gave there was that it was an anti-Shema marking. Right. Right. Anti the marking of God's people. It's an identifying who you're following. And you're pretty much willingly on. saying, "Yeah, I'm going to follow not yeah. God." You know. Um, I had a a question I was going to answer myself. There's this book is one of the resources we'll recommend here in a minute here, but it's the question, how should we live while we wait? And Matthew 24 gets into this uh, a lot. Jesus is talking about the end days. And this is what he says his followers should be like in the meantime. We should be like a homeowner who stays awake at night so he's prepared when the thief tries to break in. We should be like a servant who's hard at work doing his job when his master returns. We should be like a bridesmaid who brings extra oil for their lamp so that when the groom appears at midnight, they'll be ready to light their lamps and join the wedding procession. We should be like a servant who faithfully invests his master's money while the master's gone on a long journey. I just thought that the way that Jesus kind of captured 
what we ought to be concerning ourselves with in the meantime was really that's helpful. how he answers all these questions he he doesn't yeah. answer the question he answers with the question you should have asked mm -hmm. in other words what should we be doing in the meantime that's good you know um i would i i think we could wrap with this i yeah. want to read first thessalonians chapter four because because this is First Thessalonians chapter 4 is in the context, again, of Paul writing about how we're supposed to be in the end times as we uh, wait expectantly for the arrival of Jesus. This is all of chapter 4 of First Thessalonians is about this. And there's a middle paragraph in there that when you read it, I think it just it can floor you with what Paul is saying, how you should be acting and it is the exact antithesis of how most Christians are behaving today. Okay, so let's start, though, in the very beginning. It's interesting the emphasis that Paul puts on the problem with sexual immorality in the first part of this chapter. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. So he's saying, here's how you're supposed to be living in anticipation of the return of Christ, okay? For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's his first one, right out of the gate, okay? That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And that was just unpacked in these videos about uh, how Jesus is going to handle uh, things in the Revelation. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, here's this middle paragraph. This is how we're supposed to be behaving, again, in anticipation of the Lord coming. Is this how you see people from the church, people of faith, behaving? And I would argue the vast majority, no, okay? Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, here you go, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, hello Twitter, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Let me just read that to you again to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul, in other places in the New Testament, he says, quit being such a busybody. Don't be, don't be in everybody's business. Mind your own business, okay? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, uh, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about those who have died before Jesus comes again. You and I might, certainly I will die before Jesus comes again. You might die before Jesus comes again. And so he's talking about what happens if you die and if you're alive when Jesus comes again. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed and will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel first, with the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this is, this is he's giving a little bit of detail of what it's going like to be like when the new Jerusalem is ushered in. Uh, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and then eventually we will be, those who, of us who are still alive, will be caught up with him. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, encourage one another with these words. And the idea is that once we're caught up with Jesus in the air, he will keep coming down here to restore creation into the new Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing. Well, let's take a look at the uh, resources for further yeah. study, and we uh, really do hope that you'll consider going deeper into the book. I mean, the, the best plan for tonight would have been to take many more hours and actually just read through the book of Revelation, but we took that shortcut with a couple of videos. But we hope that you do engage with the scripture, and there we go. Do you want to talk about any of these up here, Frank? Yeah, let me look at them. So, um, uh, I'm most, well, I, of course, I'm familiar with the Bible Project and all their stuff. I am most familiar with uh, N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, and uh, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, Heaven, this book is a thick book in terms of lots of pages, like about 700 pages, but it's a very easy read, and he has a lot of helpful insight, so I can recommend, many of you know Randy Alcorn, he's written lots of books, and he's written a lot of shorter books that are very helpful, but that's a, that's a helpful book. Uh, about uh, this topic. Um, N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope, uh, for me, was a, a benchmark book in reading about end times and what happens and all of that. This was really a helpful book, but I have to give a little disclaimer about this book. There is a chapter in there that N.T. Wright uh, writes about hell where he confesses that he's just not on board with the doctrine of hell. And so that's a little bit challenging for uh, somebody that I really trust as being a great biblical theologian, but he struggles with the doctrine of hell, and at least he admits that, yeah. you know. And he says, I know what the Bible says about it, I just really struggle with it. So mm -hmm. um, if that is something that might bother you in reading this book, then don't read the book. But the rest of the book I found really helpful uh, to me. Yeah, and the Bible Project are the people who made the videos we watch, but they have a podcast where they dig in. They actually go through the book of Revelation um, in eight, eight weeks, um, eight different series. Uh, this book, the, the red one there, How Will the World End? It's really small and quick, and it's made to be uh, really easy to read. And as well as the podcast, you can kind of take it as you go. Uh, the Reading Revelation Responsibly is an in-depth commentary, a really scholarly work. So it takes you some good time to work through that one. So yeah, plenty of resources there for further study, and we hope you do engage with that. The best thing we can do with conversations and fears like these of, man, I'm worried that we're in the end times, I'm worried of all these news reports pointing us towards that. 
uh, the, the best thing you can do is get that conversation out in the open with fellow believers, Christians who love you and know you, uh, to dig into that together and, and see, see what God's word really says. Anything you'd want to add to set no. us off? I think you can pray for us and we'll okay. get all set. Well, thanks for watching. Thanks for those who are able to be here. Uh, we hope it was encouraging for you. And let me pray for us. God, thank you for this view that your word has on um, that you are a good God. You're a loving God, but you're also a righteous and holy God who will come to judge. And man, many of us need to hear that right now with with the, uh, the, those who are protesting in the country, uh, need to hear, God, that you're not passive. You're not just allowing these things to happen and you'll never deal with them, but your word says that the blood of the innocent cries out and you are going to come and make all things new. And so, God, give us that eternal perspective and may it fill us with hope and love and let us busy our hands with the task in front of us that you're calling us to each day. Help us to be faithful, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.